This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days, go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, koalas, robots and brains. But first up, here's the news. Cheap, flexible solar panels printed in Australia. Well, invented in Australia, for manufacture overseas at least. Australia's Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, CSIRO, in collaboration with the Consortium of Melbourne Universities, have developed a cheap and fast way to print solar cells onto plastic, using the same technology used to print Australia's plastic banknotes. Phone, tablet and laptop cases, windows, roofs, walls, cars, all could be covered with plastic printed solar cells, which can be semi-transparent like a tinted window, yet still convert light into electricity to directly power devices or be accumulated and stored for later. The solar cells on the market today are mostly made of high-grade silicon, which is expensive. The plastic solar cells use organic semiconductor inks in a thin layer on the plastic or steel. The panels are printed at 10 meters per minute, or one solar cell every two seconds. Organic semiconductors are enormously cheaper than the purified silicon used in most commercial solar cells, and the manufacturer doesn't use the chlorinated solvents needed for silicon semiconductors. The solar inks are made of an organic dye that absorbs light and a metal oxide semiconductor that converts the absorbed light into electricity. The dyes can be made from a huge range of colours, which mean that not only can the cells be made for different lighting conditions, but the look can be tailored as well. The team plan to apply dust-repellent plastic coatings to the surface of the cells to keep them clean and efficient. Like silicon, they'll be guaranteed for a lifetime of 10 years. In 2013, the team moved up from printing coin-sized solar cells to A3-sized solar sheets. The A3 solar cells can produce 10 to 50 watts of power per square metre, where 50 watts is enough power to run a small laptop computer. The ink can be tuned with different coloured dyes to convert different colours of light into electricity. So the printed solar cells could complement the current silicon solar cells that can only convert a few frequencies of light into power. Organic solar cells work well with diffuse lighting and indoor lighting, where silicon cells start to lose power. The Victorian Organic Solar Cell Consortium of Monash and Melbourne Universities and CSIRO have been working on the project since 2007. The plastic solar cells are currently converting 6% of the light into electricity, but they hope to increase that 
to 10% or more soon. In comparison, the silicon solar cells on the market can convert up to 20% of light into electricity, but plastic and ink solar cells are enormously cheaper to produce. Just 10 tonnes of plastic, which could make a container of plastic bags, could be used instead to print 100,000 kilometres of solar-powered film, which is enough to replace a commercial coal power station or nuclear power plant. Commercial print trials are happening now, so the technology is expected to be on sale in about five years. Unfortunately, the project is funded by the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, ARENA, which is under threat from the federal government's plans to abolish it. Genuinely random numbers on computers? Physicists at the University of Geneva have generated the completely random using an obsolete mobile phone and a light. Random number generators are the basis of the encryption that protects your bank account, your privacy, and the games of chance you play online. However, any computer program generated random numbers aren't really random, because they've just taken the time, or some other seed, and put it in an algorithm to generate a number. If I knew which software you used, and correctly guessed the time you used it, I could crack your code or cheat at your online casino. Hackers have done this to cheat at online poker. The only way to get real randomness is to look outside the predictable digital world inside the computer to the messy real world outside. In the Second World War, national security was protected by the cryptographers using real random numbers made by getting people to toss buckets of dice. Ten years ago, some American physicists shone a light through a lava lamp to generate genuine random numbers for encryption. And the US government tried to make it illegal to export lava lamps outside the US, as a controlled munition. The physicists took a 2011 Nokia N9 phone running the Mego Linux operating system and shone a laser on its 8 megapixel camera. Each pixel of the camera gets hit with a random number of photons of light. Using the N9's open source software, the team converted the pixel count into a steady stream of genuinely random numbers. They confirmed their technique by switching to a more sensitive 8 megapixel camera designed for astronomical photos. They had converted the digital camera sensor on an obsolete open source phone into a genuine random number generator. All of the parts could be shrunk down to the micro scale to be added to all network computers as a random number chip. The method of extracting the numbers from the pixels hit by light in the camera sensor will now be refined. At present, the mathematical assays say that the number stream would take at least 10 to the power of 60 years, that's one with 60 zeros after it, to reproduce. But for pure, true randomness, they need better. The paper was titled Quantum Random Number Generator on a Mobile Phone and will be published in the Physical Review X. Breaking news, the 2014 Nobel Prize in Physics was given to Osamo Akasaki from Mayo University, Hiroshi Amano from Nagoya University, and Shuji Nakamura from the University of California, Santa Barbara, for the invention of the blue light-emitting diodes, that along with the existing red and green LEDs, enable us to create bright but low-power white light sources. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast 
over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And now we return to the Sydney Mini Maker Fair at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney. For a short, sharp group of makers. Elwyn is from the LX Group, an electronics product design house in the Technology Park at Redfern in Sydney. She's tracking koalas online. What's the project you're showing here at the Maker Fair? Uh, the Maker Fair project we have today is our koala tracking system. So basically it's a new new designed collar and tag tracking system for koalas in the wild. So you know what you will have had in previous years is big bulky collars, people out with big Yagi antennas wandering through the bush. We sort of looked at that and went, come on, you know, we've got 3G these days. How about we have something that you can look at on the web without having to get out there? So we've designed a collar which goes on the koala. Um, it's designed to be very small and very light. Koalas actually, as it happens, when they sleep, they tuck their chins in, so you can't have anything sitting directly under the chin. So um, what we've designed is a collar that will do that and that is light enough that it's not impeding their way of life. So the, the tags we have have a battery life of about six months, which is how often the koalas are handled by veterinary researchers. So tag lasts on them six months. It collects data, so it will give you their GPS location. Um, it's got an accelerometer in it and a couple of other sensors, so it'll give you their activity levels. It'll tell you, you know, yes, they're moving around plenty, they're healthy, or it'll say, uh-oh, your koala hasn't moved in a couple of days, might want to go and check on that animal and see that they're all right. Also got high G detection, so say if they get hit by a car or if they fall out of a tree, then you can it'll send an alert immediately to the researchers going, high G alert, something's happened, go and check on this animal. Um, sometimes that's a great thing for the koala that occasionally they do get saved. Unfortunately, mostly it's just collecting them for post-mortem, which is awful, but a necessary part. And you can learn a lot from that kind of thing. So the, ba the tags are currently set so that the tag collects data all day and then about every 10 to 12 hours it shoots the information back to base stations which is spread around in the bush in the research area and then the base station shoots that information out to the web and so on the web we have a an overlay on Google Maps which basically gives you a bunch of um, points where all your koalas are so you can literally look up on the web from anywhere in the world and go here's where all my koalas are bring up a little pin on each of them that will tell you their condition are they okay it'll give you their last week's worth of movements and sort of give you an idea of how your koalas are going and how they're doing. Which groups are using your koala trackers? At the moment it is being used by Endeavour Veterinary Ecology. We also have a group that's currently talking to us at the moment from Wollongong University. Unfortunately for koala safety reasons it can't be public. We can't have people looking up and going, ha, there's a koala, because most people are good about it but you do get the occasional hoon, so for safety reasons it can't be public. The stuff we have here today is, you know, archive data. We do have a copy of it available but we can't show you the live stuff, sorry. So. With the archives, do you have like where the koalas have been that people yeah, can look at? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so what it'll bring up is it'll bring you up, here's the map, and basically it drops pins in the same way when you search something, it'll show, have a pin, and on each pin you click it, it'll come up with a photo of that individual koala, it'll give you the history, and within each one of those it will link you back to your personal database. So each research group will have their own version of this website 
and that will each koala will take you back to here's the history of this animal here's its health it'll give you a map of its territory that's the really useful thing we're finding is that it'll show you where each koala goes what their territory is and you can see how that's overlapping with urban areas in this particular research group we've got here with Endeavour, they're um, just a little bit north of Brisbane and they're in an area which has been mostly, it's a reserve, but they're putting a road through it. And so part of the reason for this particular project is to track how they're going beforehand and what happens to them as that road goes through, because obviously that's a big impact on their habitat. Can you tell me, who are the LX group? <laughs> LX group, we're a group of electrical and hardware engineers, so we specialise in designing embedded and wireless systems. So we've done a, so many different projects. Because we do new products, people come to us, so we've done stuff in the mining industry, we've done stuff in medical, we've done stuff for cochlear, we do a lot of consumer electronics. So any idea you have, if you come to us, we will work through conceptual development to go, okay, what exactly we're we building here, and then we will prototype for you and build it up and take it through right to manufacture it. And where should people look if they want to find you online and your uh, koala project? If they want to look for us, there is uh, www.lx-group.com.au. There is also, not quite live yet, but will be shortly, is trackkoalas.com, and that's where there's information specific to koala project. Well, Elwyn, thank you very much. My pleasure. That was Elwyn tracking koalas. You can find out more at lxgroup.com.au and trackkoalas.com. And the next makers are all from the Robots and Dinosaurs makerspace. Gavin Smith built a robot coffee table. So you've got an amazing tray of sand here with all sorts of patterns in it and a computer. Thank you. Um, yeah, this is my coffee table, which is also a robot. Um, and it has a couple of motors underneath and it has a very large magnet. And on top, I just have a very ordinary disc magnet. And uh, that's just dragged by whatever's happening underneath. I design up the pattern on the computer. It actually speaks G-code, which is the same language that CNC machines and giant industrial presses speak. And it sends it through and draws it out. And so the challenge is just telling it what to make. And so I've been playing around with making sort of generative patterns and spirals and, and lucidry figures and, and things like that. So and that's, that's the next challenge is making, making different things. And, uh, yeah. Cursive writing? Cursive writing is a very good way to do it, yes. Um, but it's very satisfying to have this thing that can just sort of run for a couple of hours by itself and you come back and it's made your, uh, made your design for you. And how did the idea come to you? There's been one or two of these uh, around on the net, but uh, a friend of mine, Nick, and I were both kicking around the idea of, of uh, generative artworks, and, and we had this sort of soft competition between us, and he ended up making one, I ended up making a different one, and uh, it sort of grew from there. This, this final version, this is my latest one, uh, this, hardware-wise, this was a one-day build, so I am very happy with that. And so what is an Arduino-based robot underneath with the magnet? Um, underneath there is a, a board called a, a Tiny G, which is a CNC driver. There is an Arduino, but it's running the light strip. It's actually running the demo code um, for the LED lights. But um, I, I kind of like the effect, so we stuck with it for now. And of course, you're with Robots and Dinosaurs. Yes, the Robots and Dinosaurs gang have come out for the Maker Fair today, and uh, all the all the projects you can see in, in this half of the room are, are R&D things. So we've got uh, laser cut bits and pieces. We've got 3D printed stuff. Alex has made his wonderful robot from scratch. Uh, please talk to Alex if you haven't already. 
it's a research grade robot. It has GPS. It has mapping. It has everything. It's it's very very amazing. And uh, we've got the robotic sewing machine over there that Finn made, uh, which is awesome. Um, so yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of things. People people are. Um, are coming in and having a look and it's fantastic just to be able to, to share ideas and, and chat with people all day long and I'm almost lost my voice and hopefully by the end of the day I will have totally lost my voice because it's so much fun then there's some yes yes well Gavin thank you very much thank you Alex McClellan is a 17 year old high school student who's built a robot that can navigate outdoors on its own I spoke to him at the Sydney Mini Maker Fair and began by asking him to explain the label Outdoor Autonomous Robot. It's got 25 onboard sensors and it, it traverses the environment. It's just got wheels and differential steering. So it, with position sensors on it and cameras, oh, well, it's got a connect camera on the front and GPS, inertial measurement unit. So it measures just the same sort of sensors you find in a phone, like the tilt sensors. And right. Like, so yeah. So, and it's, yeah, it's got... It's got uh, quadrature feedback on the on the wheels, so you got millimeter so you can detect when it's doing that. Right. So sub millimeter accuracy on how far the wheels have spun. So it knows where it is. Yep. And how far it's gone. Yep. Wow. And then basically you combine all these sensor data together and you try yes. and determine which data is good, which data is bad, yes. and use the good data. Otherwise, you, you'll end up yeah, it's just screw up on you. So then you. Well, what I'm actually running is robot operating system. Yes. So it's an open source platform where you basically you download all your drivers and yeah, and it all just works. So like just just like you configure say your wheel diameter and all these sorts of things like that and where your sensors are located. Press run and that's it. So you recommend it to people? Yeah, I highly recommend it. And this is an autonomous robot. So what does it go out and do? Uh, well, it, at the moment I've just got a manual mode set up, but the plan is to have it um, be able to sit anywhere in the world really with an internet connection, press a click somewhere and it'll just drive there avoiding obstacles in its way. I'm considering putting an arm on it so it can manipulate things, so I can say go here, pick that up, take it over here and I don't have to do anything, it just click, click and it does it for me. And what inspired you to start the project? Oh, well, I've always been interested in electronics, computers, uh, mechanical, so I just thought I'd, well, robotics sort of combines all of that, so um, so I just started playing around with it, and I, I met the Robots and Dinosaurs, yes. this hackerspace in Sydney, it's basically a communal workshop, yes. so all different tools like laser cutters, 3D printers, slaves, mills, CNC machines, and people that know what they're doing, so I got sort of all this information from them, and um, yeah, it just it's got bigger and bigger. So how long have you been working on this project? Uh, this one probably about a year and a half, I think, yeah. So It's amazing. And so your robot, is it is it autonomous now? Or at the moment it, it does what you tell it to do? At the moment it's it's sort of 50-50. Like it's, it does the mapping, but I've sort of got to get it the navigation. Like it's, it's, it's basically... It's 50% done, I guess you could say. It's like, I'm just, yeah. Okay. So is it expensive? So you've got, what's the basic um, hardware that you've used to build this? Uh, it's all off-the-shelf components, so you can buy them pretty much. You spark fun electronics or Adafruit electronics, they sell these sorts of things. 
So the computer is just the off-the-shelf mini ITX computer that you can buy from any old computer. So like a little mini PC? Yeah, just, it, it is a mini PC. It's got a 12-volt car PC power supply, so designed to run off 12 volts. and um, So it shuts down automatically. Like, it's got um, power features that shut off when the batteries are low and that sort of thing. And, yeah. Is it expensive to build? Oh, it's cost me about two grand, but um, but it's sort of been like little pieces. Like I might get something for twenty bucks, and I might get like it's it all adds up. Like I don't go out, and, I didn't go out in a day and go buy two grand worth of gear, but it sort of adds up to that. So, are you going to be an engineer at uni? Yeah, I'm looking at doing mechatronic engineer. So, yeah, UNSW, I think, and always, bit, yeah, that's what I want to do. All right, well, thank you very much. Uh, thank, thank you. That was Alex McClellan with his Outdoor Autonomous Robot. You can find out more about robots and dinosaurs at robodino.org.au. And finally, from the 2013 Trans-Tasman Finals of the 3-Minute Thesis Competition, The Best of the Best, Xu Yao explains her research in just three minutes with only one slide in a presentation titled Beeps, burps and brains. I will introduce to you our next presenter, whose name is Xu Yao. Xu's from the Faculty of Human Sciences at Macquarie University, and the title of her three-minute thesis presentation is Beeps, Burps and Brains, Auditory Processing in Autism. Please welcome her to the stage. by telling you about a boy. At 11, he had published books and poetry. He writes about how he views the world and its people, and how the beauty in his everyday surroundings fills his heart. This boy's name is Tito, and he has severe autism. Like 30% of people with autism, Tito does not speak. Unfortunately, we know very little about this population. We don't know what is different about their brains because there's hardly any neuroimaging research on them. My PhD is on the brain mechanisms of auditory processing in autism. I'm interested in how kids with autism discriminate sounds and how this relates to their language outcomes. Why are some hypersensitive to sounds, while others have trouble discriminating between different kinds of sounds? What do these patterns look like in the brain? To answer these questions, I look at the brain waves of kids with autism while they listen to non-speech and speech sounds. We tell them they sound like beeps and burps. Beeps go beep, beep, beep. Burps go ah, ah, ah. We know that infants with autism do not respond to speech sounds the same way typical kids do. This may affect how they communicate with and perceive our social world. To look at brainwaves, I use a neuroimaging method called MEG. MEG measures the magnetic fields on your scalp. So every time you hear a sound, your brain cells fire, and it picks up these brainwaves. Using MEG, I tested 32 kids, all of whom were verbal, until I came across a certain girl. This girl has autism, is nine years old, and has never spoken. What I found is that compared to typically developing kids, her brain responds unusually quickly and strongly to non-speech. But to speech, her responses were sluggish and weak. 
Of all the kids tested, she is the only one without language, and also the only one with this unusual brain pattern. This is important because I have shown using MEG that you can test for brain responses from a non-verbal child with autism. This has never been done before. It's also fascinating as it opens up new research questions. Firstly, why this difference? Secondly, would other non-verbal kids with autism, kids like Tito, show this pattern? I hope that my PhD will help to uncover the neural causes of language impairment in autism and ultimately lead to a better understanding of the minds of those with autism who do not speak. Thank you. You can find out more about the 3-Minute Thesis competition at 3minutethesis.org. Now here's Derek Muller with experiments. Experiments are how we test theories and further the progress of science. Experiments are how we test theories and further the progress of science. Experiments are how we test theories and further the progress of science. Progressive science. There are many theories to compare. Ooh, experiments help us find the best one. The best one. There are many theories to compare. Ooh, experiments help us find the best one. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karengai. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and apparently on astronomy.fm. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And remember to check the website for more information about this week's show. There'll be links and videos. I'm putting together a crowdfunding campaign for Diffusion on funscience.org.au. It's in slow motion, but it's getting there. It might take a few more weeks before we go live. I will notify you. I'd really appreciate hearing from you about the funder rewards you think I should offer. Would you like to hear your voice on Diffusion? Would you like to contribute a small science story on Diffusion? Or would you like to read one of my scripts? I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, Tom Glazer and Dottie Evans. 
does the glass of a greenhouse do? It lets the short solar rays pass through. The objects in the house absorb these rays and re-radiate them as long heat rays. What does the glass of a greenhouse do? It doesn't let the long heat rays pass through. Trapped by the glass, they bounce back and forth, re-radiated and reabsorbed. Stay, stay, you long heat rays. Warm up the house on cold, cold days. Stay, stay, you long heat rays. Warm up the house on cold, cold days. The atmosphere is like a greenhouse too. It lets most of the solar rays through. The surface of the earth absorbs these rays and re-radiates them as long heat rays. There's vapor in the air, what does it do? It doesn't let the long heat rays pass through. Trapped by the vapor, they bounce back and forth, re-radiated and reabsorbed. Stay, stay, you long heat rays. Warm up the house on cold, cold days. Stay, stay, you long heat rays. Warm up the earth on cold.